Mid-market sized businesses are where the true economic action in business really is. They are nimble and agile. They're factories of growth, they lead in innovation, and they're early adopters of tech. These enterprises need the right tools, support and environment to flourish. But sadly, they're often overlooked and undervalued. Not here though. This is the Mid-Market Matters podcast, and I'm your host, Craig West. We'll explore pain points, growth strategies, and how to find the competitive edge. Welcome to SME Radio. In this episode of Mid-Market Matters, I'm joined by someone who I've read a lot and a lot of material about. Uh, Corey Rosen is the founder of the National Center for Employee Ownership in Oakland in the United States. And in fact, he's been doing that for just over 40 years. The center was established back in January 1981. So, Corey, firstly, thank you for joining us. Thank you for having me. 40 years of supporting, promoting, talking about, writing about employee ownerships. That's pretty passionate. How did you get yes, that passionate is. about that topic? So before I started the center, I was working in the U.S. Senate as a staff aide, and I saw some testimony about a pretty unknown idea at the time called employee ownership. And I thought, that's it. <laughs> that's the one that I really want to get involved in. And what drew me to it was I was very passionate about the idea of creating a, an economic system that was more fair to more people and a work environment that was more inclusive and respectful and participative. And I thought, well, employee ownership does those things. But what was really appealing about it was that Unlike most things in this country where you talk about fairness or unfairness, you get this really intense political divide uh, between the right and the left, and they never can agree on pretty much anything. Even less true then than it is now, and they can't agree on anything at all. But But here was an idea that was taking the best elements of capitalism, its incentive structure, its ability to innovate and grow and be entrepreneurial, but linking that to a social objective of broadened ownership and participation for people who are otherwise largely excluded. And then as I learned more about this idea, I came across Lewis Kelso, who created the Employee Stock Ownership Plan in the U.S., and He'd written a best-selling book in the 1950s called The Capitalist Manifesto. And his argument was that as we move through the next decades, that the income attributable to capital ownership would grow substantially and the income attributable to labor ownership would stagnate or decline. And that seemed like an interesting argument. And in fact, today we know he was right. Uh, When he was writing in the 50s, the share of national income that was attributable to to labor in the U.S. and in most industrialized countries was about two-thirds. Now it's about half. So the people who own capital have captured more and more of the benefits of the economy And we certainly have in this country and in many industrialized countries, we have tremendous wealth insecurity for the large majority of the population. And so how do we address that issue? Well, Kelso's argument 
was that people can't just be reliant on their wage income. They need to be reliant on both wage income and have a capital income as well. And so the issue was, how do you make that happen? And his idea of the employee stock ownership plan, which would provide incentives to owners of businesses to share ownership with employees was something that the right, the left, the Democrats, the Republicans, uh, everybody could and did get behind. And so over the years, there have been 17 different pieces of legislation to encourage ESOPs, and there's essentially never been any opposition to them. Mm. So, it was, so it was kind of a unique political idea with tremendous, I thought, potential to make a big difference in people's lives. So I got involved in some of that early legislation and then decided that what we needed to do was create an organization that could do research on what made this work, whether it worked, and spread the word about it. And you've certainly been doing that. I've been re- you're fairly prolific in the information that you are. Uh, <laughs> right. I, I've lost count of how many books you've published and how many papers I've read, but there's a lot of them, right? Many, 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 yes. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. I was interested to see after the recent uh, US election, there was a fair bit of uh, very positive information coming out about the Biden administration and its approach towards employee share plans. Right. Is that is that different approach? I mean, you've talked about the fact that pretty much everybody agrees it's the right way to go from a political point of view. Um, but there seemed to be a fair bit of very positive sentiment post the election around Biden and his approach. Yeah, I think the, the best way to think about the politics of employee ownership is support for it is extremely broad and extremely sh- uh, shallow. <laughs> pretty yeah. much everybody thinks it's a good idea and pretty much no political leader thinks it's an important idea. Yeah. So when they think about all the things they need to do, this is way down their priority list. And yeah. what we're hoping, and we see some tea leaves to this effect, is that there are people in the Biden administration now who are very highly placed, who have said in the past that employee ownership is in fact something that's very important. So we'll see what comes of this there's a few very good signs of potential changes in legislation and maybe other support that can come we're also seeing in the u.s now some other indications that this idea is getting to be a bit more mainstream for instance one of the partners at kkr which is the third largest private equity company in the world Uh, He actually learned about employee ownership from us back in 1995 when he was a student at Harvard. And and he also got very uh, persuaded that this was a good idea. And he's now pledged $10 million to create uh, an uh, an organization that would promote more inclusive capitalism. And he's planning to recruit a lot of other heavy hitters into this effort to really go beyond what a lot of employee ownership has been in this country, as I think it's been in your country, primarily focused on small and medium-sized enterprises, and to really get the very large public companies to pay more attention to this idea and, and really share ownership more broadly. So I think that's a very hopeful sign as well. Mm. 
Yeah, absolutely. So you mentioned uh, you've obviously focused most of your research on the United States and so on, but I know you've looked at other models in other countries and so right. on. I'd be interested in your feedback, you know, internationally. What are you seeing in employee ownership generally? Yeah. So a couple of things really stand out. The first is many countries have experimented with employee ownership. Uh, a lot of Eastern European countries did uh, post the breakup of the Soviet Union. Uh, but a number of countries around the world have looked at this in various ways. And almost invariably, the way that they start is by having employees purchase shares, often with some sort of discount or incentive. Yep. And <clears throat> that is really limited, it turns out. Yeah. It turns out maybe two thirds of the employees gen in general will not buy the shares because it's difficult for them to commit the resources to do it when you're living paycheck to paycheck. Yeah, they can't afford it. They can't afford it. It's risky. Yep. They don't really understand how stock works. So lots of barriers to doing that. And so the amount of ownership, you know, like in the continental European countries, most of them have these plans might get to 1% or 2% or maybe 3% of a company. So not a lot. And for the small and medium-sized enterprises, the laws pretty much ignore those. And then if you have to buy shares in those companies, that's more of an issue because of securities laws and other problems. So, yep. so that model, which is tried over and over and over again, just doesn't work very well. Now I think people are coming to the conclusion that if you're going to have sustained employee ownership, it needs to be a trust-based model similar to what we do in the U.S. And, and I'm delighted to find that you're now doing something very similar in Australia. The yep. U.K. has a model that's very much like that in the U.S. that was adopted uh, about now about 15 years ago and enhanced in 2012 uh, and they're getting a lot of activity in the uk around employee ownership trusts now there's a proposal in the uh, european parliament to create some sort of standards for a, a similar kind of plan across continental europe uh, so so there's some growth there and then it's kind of scattered in other countries we do know there's a lot of employee ownership in China. Huawei, for instance, is owned by its employees. 98% is owned by its uh, by its employees. But we don't have a we, we know a lot about how that works at Huawei, but we don't know a lot about employee ownership in other countries other than there is quite a bit of it. Right. The Chinese government doesn't publish data and scholars haven't done studies at least that we can find yeah yeah interesting though yeah so look i think you know i'm seeing certainly here anecdotally a lot more interest in employee share plans we had a fairly substantial uptick in inquiry and and and, and plans proceeding during COVID. and i think that was partly people working at home you know employers worried about how do i make sure these people are engaged and motivated and incentivized to, to work through what was a pretty difficult period although as i said to you before we didn't have anywhere near as difficult an experience as with COVID as what you've had and are still having 
Um, but it certainly had an impact on inquiry around employee share plans. I'm interested in your thoughts. You know, there is part of it is around, you know, the inclusive capital and sharing that wealth of ownership of capital assets amongst employees. And there's certainly lots of research around how that affects company performance and productivity and profit, et cetera. I'm interested in what your thoughts are around some of the barriers, because I still talk to people who think this is a terrible idea, including advisors and accountants who tell me it's the worst thing they've ever heard of. Um, I'm interested in your thoughts around some of the barriers. Yeah, I I suspect, you know, just in our chatting briefly before that we're seeing pretty much exactly the same ones. Uh, So I would say, you know, in the United States, we've been fortunate in that. There are tremendous tax benefits for ESOPs, employee stock owners, and, and ESOPs is a, a statutory term here. It's not a generic term for employer. Yeah. There are a variety of ways companies share ownership with employees here, but the ESOP is a very specific way with very specific rules and benefits. And as in Australia, you set up a trust, there's a bunch of rules about who's in the trust and when they get shares. Uh, And in return for following those rules, the money that you put into the plan is tax deductible. uh, So you can purchase your shares in pre-tax dollars, which is a big deal. Uh, Employees aren't taxed until after they've left the company. Uh, In the U.S., they can roll it over into another retirement plan and delay tax even further. Uh, Sellers to ESOPs in the U.S., and this is true in the U.K. now, too, They can get a tax deferral if they sell to an ESOP and reinvest in other uh, companies. They don't have to pay any tax until they sell the the new security. That's that's a really positive one. We don't have that here. Yeah, that's a nice one to have. And then the sort of ultimate tax benefit is, and I won't go into all the, the details about how and why this happens, but it's a statute. It's not some clever lawyers doing this. Yeah. If yeah. you are 100% owned by your ESOP, you don't pay any taxes, any uh, federal or, or state income taxes. So yeah, that's, that's a pretty neat benefit. It certainly is. It's not That's not available here either, let me right. assure you. <laughs> so you have all these benefits. And by the way, it turns out because the employees ultimately are taxed on the shares they have in those companies, that the uh, government ends up with more tax money, not less. But you have all these benefits that would seem for the the prime target audience of the business owner who's thinking about transitioning, or maybe the business owner who's in her 50s and, as you say, would like employees to be more engaged, isn't ready to leave the company yet, but but would like to share incentives you have all these tax benefits and then they go to their accountant or their or a business broker and they say hey you know i want to do one of these things i've heard about an esop and very often this is no 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 you don't want to do that it's complicated it's expensive uh they don't work they don't work for your industry uh you know you'd be better off doing this or that. Now, the translation of this is is twofold. One is, I don't know how to do an ESOP, and things that I don't understand must not be a good idea. And besides, since I don't know how to do it, you might get some other advisor to help you. So this must not be a good idea. 
or even worse, you're a, a business broker or a mergers and acquisitions person. And the way that they get money is a success fee. So yep. if they sell your company for $5 million, they might get you know, a couple hundred thousand dollars as just the success fee, let alone all the other legal fees and everything. Well, if you sell to an ESOP, the, guess what? You know, the broker didn't find your buyer. All, the broker just yeah. went to yeah. some website like ours and said and found, oh, there's this ESOP thing. And it doesn't really seem right for the business broker to say, I found your buyer uh, on the NCO's website. It's an ESOP. And uh, for that search, I'm charging you $200,000. Yeah, absolutely. So, so, they, so I've had business brokers tell me it would be a great thing for my client, but I'm not going to tell them. Unbelievable, eh? Yeah, we, we see a similar thing here where owners, um, there's, I think there's two things. The owners, some owners are just not aware that it even exists or what it is or how it might work. And those that are aware often perceive it to be the realm of large listed corporates, public right. companies, etc., not privately owned businesses. Starting to change, starting to get more awareness around it. But we face the same barrier. Sometimes our you know, accountants or business broker might tell the clients, I oh, know that's not a good idea for the reasons you've sort of outlined. And you do have to be the right company. I mean, you are. Sure, it's not if for you're everybody. Doing this, you're, you are creating a non-productive future cost for the company, and so you have to have the profits to make that work. Now, of course, yep. we know from the research on ESOPs that ESOP companies are very successful relative to other companies. So. They tend to generate more profits to make that practical. But if you have a company that's, uh, oh, I don't know, if you're a, a restaurant in the U.S. right now, this might not be a good time to try to do an ESOP. Yeah, 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 absolutely. So you mentioned academic research a few times, and I know you've done a lot of work in this space. What are you seeing emerging? What's some of the new research telling right. people around ESOPs and, and where they're headed? So there's been research now going back 40 years. So there's a lot of research around that. And, uh, and I used to be a social scientist. So uh, I'm, I'm impressed by the fact that in social science, you don't typically see for any complex human phenomenon like how businesses perform such a confluence of results where, where they tend to find exactly the same thing over and over again. But, but all these studies do. So, not, so there's, I think, two main flows to that research. One is, do these things work? And secondly, what makes them work better? So on the first question, we know that ESOP companies grow about 2.2% per year faster post-ESOP than you would have expected. And what we mean by that is if you compare ESOP companies to their competitors before, Say they're growing this that that you know Sam's Pizza is growing three percent faster than Sam's competitors pre-ESOP. This means that after the ESOP, Sam's will be growing about five point two percent per year faster. But, you know, two point two percent per year. Maybe that doesn't seem like a lot, but you compound that year after year. That's a big yeah, difference. It's a lot. Big difference. And the second thing that we know is that. Uh, participants in ESOPs end up with about two and a half times as much wealth 
as they would have if they weren't in an ESOP. So it's very common in the United States for employees who've been with the company 20 or 30 years to leave with hundreds of thousands of dollars in stock value when they leave the company. Or looked at another way, over 20 years, typically uh, four to eight times your salary. So yeah. that's, a, that's a lot of money. And plus these companies have typically other uh, retirement plans on top of that that employees can be involved in. We also know that the ESOP companies lay people off at about one-third to one-fifth the rate, depending on the year that you're looking at. And they default. In, in the U.S., a lot of ESOPs borrow money to do an acquisition, so they buy the owner's shares with a loan from a bank or a seller note, and they default on these loans at two per thousand per year. So, wow. so defaults are very rare. Yeah. So we know that these these companies do, in fact, succeed a lot more. They also pay better and provide better benefits to employees. So they're not succeeding because ownership's in exchange for other things. Right. Then we looked at, well, what makes one company perform better than another? And here, too, uh, the answer is really crystal clear. I, I wrote a book about this last year that looks at the very specific models that companies use for this called Beyond Engagement, how to turn your company into an idea factory and the, how to turn your business into an idea factory. And that, and that title really kind of summarizes what, what we've found. One of the opening lines of the book is it's simple. The best ESOP companies are, one, are the ones that generate the most ideas about the most things from the most people. And so it's not just saying, oh, you're owners now. And so as owners, you'll work harder and the company will perform better. Turns out that relationship's quite weak, that the that working harder doesn't, no matter how good you are at it, doesn't improve corporate performance that much. You can actually mathematically model why that's the case. What does really move the needle is when you're a company like Hypertherm, which is an employee-owned manufacturer of plasma cutting tools. It's got about 1,000 employees, and they generate 2,000 usable ideas from employees per year. Wow. Now, imagine if in your company you got two usable company-improving ideas per employee per year how much better your company will perform. But you don't get that, it turns out, by saying, well, we really want your ideas and we really want you to help identifying problems. And so we're gonna do that by an open door policy. You know, we're employee owned, we're an open door, come tell me what you think. And I say to companies, saying you're an open door company is, is really a waste of breath. You should yeah. just say you're a company. Because there is no company on earth that says they have a closed door policy. Yeah. And it, it's, it's a meaningless concept for employees. It's much too ambiguous. If you want employee involvement, it doesn't happen because you allow it. And it doesn't happen because you encourage it. It happens because you structure it into the, your work processes. So let me give you an example. 
Yeah. There's a, an engineering company in Michigan called uh, MSA, and they have a number of locations. And at each location, there's an ideas team. So this is made up of uh, typically non-management employees and maybe a few supervisory level employees. And that team creates a process. So all the employees will participate in what they call monthly huddles. So yep. they get together and they just sort of toss ideas around. Every three months, these huddles are asked to come up with two ideas per employee in that huddle group. So all these ideas now at each location get channeled to the ideas team. Of course, some of them are the, will be the same from different huddles. Yep. Yep. So they'll come up with all these ideas. They make a list of the ideas, and then they prioritize the few ideas, the ideas team does this, that are the most important. Say, so well, let's pursue these. Now they create a score sheet, and the score sheet asks, well, who's the owner of that idea? What's the problem that this idea is addressing? What are the steps we're going to take to do it? You know, we're going to have meetings. We're going to do this or that. What, how do we track the progress and show whether it's helping us make money? And what's the result? So that spreadsheet is available for everybody to check on from time to time. Uh, ideas that they think were good ideas but not priority go into a parking lot and get revisited the next time. So every employee is involved mm -hmm. in this process on a regular basis, and the ideas generation concept gets driven by employees. Uh, at another company, Barclay Water Management, small company near Boston, and they provided chemicals to big buildings, hospitals, offices, and the like, to treat the, the big pipes that water flows through for typically heating and other purposes. Yeah. And so that those pipes wouldn't decay, these, you know, these chemicals are to prevent corrosion. Steam goes through those pipes and so on. Well, one of their customers was a hospital and asked one of the salespeople, uh, you know, do you guys, well, actually the salesperson asked the customer, what else can we do for you? What are your problems? Not here's what we have to sell. And then the customer said, you know, we're worried about Legionnaires. Can you help us? This was not a Barclay product. Yep. So the salesperson went back to the R&D folks, and the R&D folks met with the people on the shop floor who made stuff. And they said, you know, could we come up with a machine to test for Legionnaire's disease and something to actually treat it. We've never done this before, but could we do it? And so this group of employees got together and they created this device. And within three years, that device had become about a third of their sales and 65% of their profits. The top management was never involved in the development of this process other than to say, that's cool. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> and after that, the CEO said, this was so good. 
any team that comes up with any idea that costs $5,000 or less, just go do it. And any idea that costs more than $5,000, ask me. But you need to understand, I'm almost certainly going to say yes, even if I disagree, unless I think this may sink the ship. Yeah. That's the kind of culture that really drives performance. It's interesting. It sounds a lot like the uh, the, the stuff that was uh, ownership thinking with Brad Ham's had some of those it, elements. In it. Yes, it's very, very much uh, in line with the sort of stuff that Brad was talking about. Yeah, we've got a few clients where we've implemented. We call it ownership mindset, which is really about some of the stuff you've talked about. We have huddles and we train employees to right. think and act like a business owner. But I'm really fascinated by the ideas, con- you know, br- bringing in an ideas team and just fostering that innovation because it's always true. Employees always know more about what's going on in the business right. than the CEO or the board. They have to. Right. And I also like the idea I'm on the board of some ESOP companies and one of the companies, uh, they started a process called Ideas to Innovation. And I, first of all, I just love the idea. And the way that works is their salespeople will go to their customers, utilities in this case, and they've stopped asking, saying, here's what we have to offer you, and instead started saying, what problems do you have? Which is, I think, first of all, a great mindset for a salesperson. Yeah. And so they'll hear these problems, then they come back and they sort of do what Barclay did, except they have a formal process for it now. They come back and they say, here's the problems. And on a team in each of four or five different areas, there's an I2I team consisting of marketing, sales, research and development, engineering, and shop floor employees. Yep. In other words, all the different functions, mm. all the way down to the people on the floor building whatever it is. And they'll go through this and say, can we do this? And if we do it, would it be profitable? And if it's profitable, should we devote resources to this rather than other things we can do? And in the first year that they had this, uh, it added about 5% revenue to their total revenue. In the second year, it's going to be adding about 15%. In the third year, they're anticipating it will be 40%. That's massive. Yeah. Yeah. So it's interesting because you're talking there about not so much the employee ownership of equity, you're talking about employee engagement and involvement in the business, which is such an important aspect of employee ownership. And and you can, you know, you can say, well, you can have all those things without employee ownership. What do you need ownership for? And my answer to that is it's kind of like going to employees and saying, we want you to have an ownership mindset. We want you to think and act like owners. And I, I, you know, I want to say to these people, great. How about if I invite you all to dinner? Nice dinner. And we'll go to the restaurant and there'll be a nice spread of food. You can help me decide what it is we're going to eat. You can smell the atmosphere and see all the nice food on the table. And in fact, because I want you to have that ownership mindset, you can help me pay for it. But you can't actually eat it because actually, you know, for, for you, a sense of dinner should be sufficient. <laughs> yeah, absolutely. 
Yeah. And, and so when, when you do that with employees, what the research shows is that these systems don't persist. So we did a study of open book management, great game of business companies. Yep. And so again, the study would, was to say, let's look at companies who set up these plans and let's see how they did relative to their competitors before and after. And we'll divide them into two groups, the companies that have employee ownership and the companies that don't. Well, what we found was we quickly were able to put together a sample of a hundred and some ESOP companies where we could do that analysis. We asked all the people in the open book management field, you know, do you, we need names of companies that have been doing this for at least six years, three years before, three years after. And we had a really hard time finding them because one of two things happened. Either they did it for a while and then they stopped. Yep. Or they did it for a while and then they became an ESOP. Right. Interesting. Yeah, okay. So, look, before we – I could talk all day about this topic, as you probably know, but uh, we do have a time limit. So, sure. <laughs> look, I'd love to ask you, uh, before we wrap up, number one tip for companies looking at or thinking about going into employee ownership. What would you say the number one thing is they should be getting right? Number one is talk to the right people. <laughs> so, <laughs> get information that's, that's accurate. So, you know, talk to you. Uh, you know, if you can go to websites uh, where you can get good information, uh, do that. If somebody tells you no, it just doesn't work, you know, at least question whether that's really true for you. Uh, the second thing is talk to companies who've done it. This, these, you know, the, yeah. data are wonderful <laughs> and, uh, you know, legal descriptions are wonderful. But nothing as persuasive as a story. So, so get the story. Absolutely, absolutely. Corey, thank you so much from companies who've done it. Yeah, absolutely. And and there's a lot. I mean, I I've, I have directed several people to your uh, website, which is www.nceo.org. There's a lot of information on there, um, and it's updated quite regularly. So, uh, yeah, it's not a bad place for a resource. Um, how long are you going to keep going? You've been going for 40 years. Another 40 sounds good. I, yeah. I have no interest at all in retiring. I'm Actually, I stopped being the director now uh, almost 10 years ago. Right. And that was kind of the plan, that 30 years would be enough as director. But So I'm now kind of uh, essentially a full-time, almost full-time volunteer and I do this because I love it. I mean, there's there's not a day I don't wake up and think I am so lucky to be able to doing to be able to do something that engages me, interests me, that gives me a sense of purpose. And and, and best of all, even now in these virtual times when you know the only way I see people is on a computer screen, is this community is extraordinary. The people who get involved in employee ownership. Uh, are, are caring people with a real sense of community and uh, mutual obligation and integrity. And it's enormously satisfying. 
Yeah, maybe the, the best way to summarize this is we have a big conference. In fact, our virtual conference is coming up next mm. month, April 20th to the 21st. Check that out. Um, yeah. And it's uh, if you can't be there, and you know, at when it's actually running, because I know the times are different. But uh, if you can't be there, it's also being recorded, so you can get their recording. So lots of good stuff there. But somebody came to one of our live conferences, a couple thousand people at these conferences, and they'd been to a conference for stock plan administrators and public companies. And uh, and they said, you know, I go to those conferences and they're great. There's lots of good information. Come to your conference. It's great. There's lots of good information. But your conference is like an evangelical tent meeting. There's all these people who are so enthusiastic about what they're doing, who feel so good about the way that their companies are operating. Uh, and yeah. it's really just contagious. Fantastic. Corey, thank you for joining us. It's um, lots you, of really Greg. interesting information. We'll look forward to catching up with you again soon. Great. Thanks very much. And good luck to everybody there. And, and keep doing what you're doing with COVID. We envy you. Thanks for listening to Mid-Market Matters. I hope you found this episode helpful and informative for your business. To find out more, go to midmarketmatters.com.au. And to download other episodes, go to Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or anywhere you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening.